0: Our Father and our God, we again thank You for Your Holy Scriptures. We thank You for Your Word that comes to us this day by Your good providence. And we pray that Your Spirit would direct us in the truth, that we would see Christ clearly and understand more fully the calling You have placed upon us as the church and as believers in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As the text in Genesis 41 was just read, How did you imagine Pharaoh's dreams? What pictures did you have in your mind? Maybe you thought of an illustrated version of the story that you've seen at some point, or perhaps an almost comical version of the story played in your head, as the idea of skinny cows swallowing fat cows can almost seem humorous. Well, I suspect our conception of Pharaoh's dreams are much too tame. When you picture the details, do you see it as a cartoon in your mind or in a more realistic fashion? Pharaoh didn't see the dreams in cartoon fashion, and neither should we. In fact, when we take the time to stop and think about the de- stop and think about it, the details can be downright disturbing. You know, the, these dreams aren't G rated. They're PG-13 at least. So let's imagine together. Seven attractive and plump cows come up out of the Nile River the Nile being a source of life. And these cows just emerge from the water, a little bit odd perhaps, but hardly disturbing. And they eat the reed grass by the river, a rather pleasant and pastoral scene. But then, seven other cows come up out of the Nile, evil and thin. They're gruesome. You can see their skin stretched thinly over their bones. Every rib is visible, vertebrae protruding along their backs, faces sunken. They're loathsome to see, and they walk up to the seven fat cows and stand next to them. And then in a moment, completely unexpected, your eyes are met with a grisly scene. The seven evil cows turn, in, turn carnivorous and devour the seven fat cows. Maybe you imagine them being swallowed in a single gulp. Or maybe we're to imagine the evil cows as having fangs that tear the fat cows into pieces, ripping their flesh and devouring them like wild animals, causing a bloody mess all over the ground at the river's edge. Pharaoh isn't simply having a dream. He's having a nightmare. And he's so shaken by it that it wakes him up in the middle of the night. And you can just picture him jolting upright in his bed in a cold sweat, aghast, of air escaping his lips as he cries out in terror at what he just seen. But then he's able to calm down and go back to sleep, and dreams again, this time of seven years of grain, plump and good, hardly a threatening scene. How scary can ears of grain be? But then seven years thin and blighted by the desert wind also appear and they undergo a transformation, forming mouths which they use to completely devour the seven good grains." Another seemingly innocuous scene becomes a horror story, a nightmare. It's no wonder Pharaoh was troubled in the morning by these dreams, as were the cupbearer and baker after their dreams in chapter 40. What he saw was frightening, and he knew these weren't ordinary dreams or nightmares. So Pharaoh did what any king would do. He called in the magicians, the priests, those of the religious order who were supposed to be able to interpret dreams. He also called in the wise men, the royal counselors, who could advise him once the interpretation of the dream was established. And then verse 8 literally reads, And he told them the dream, singular, but there was no one who could interpret them, plural, to Pharaoh. Now the disparity between the singular and the plural there may indicate that Pharaoh believed these two dreams were really one dream, whereas his advisors were treating them as two completely separate dreams. Pharaoh's instincts are better, even as Joseph goes on to reveal. But isn't it also of further interest that back in chapter 37, Joseph's brother and father seemed readily able to interpret Joseph's dreams, where here we find the Egyptians cannot interpret Pharaoh's. Jacob and his family are the priestly people, the people of the covenant, of the word of God, the revelation of God, the people who have God's promises and true wisdom. And as Joseph was clearly portrayed as the interpreter in chapter 40, so he proves himself as such to Pharaoh here in chapter 41. And not only as an interpreter, a priest, but also as a wise man, a kingly counselor. And as we consider Joseph and what he experienced, surely we see Jesus and his experience. And then we'll find principles from their experiences for our own calling in the life of faith. Well, we've essentially covered the first eight verses already, but I do want to draw your attention to the chronological note given to us in verse 1. After two whole years. This connects back to chapter 40. What happened two years before? Pharaoh's birthday when he threw a feast for his servants. We're to rightly conclude that God visits Pharaoh with these nightmares right around, if not exactly at the time of his birthday. Even more, the details recounted by the chief cupbearer in verses 9 to 13 recapitulate the events of chapter 40, picking up on significant languages, a significant language and themes. Joseph is referred to as a Hebrew, a servant in the house of the captain of the guard, and as an able interpreter of dreams. And if two whole years have passed, then, then that means this is a third year. The number three being connected with judgments, even as we noted in relation to the three days in the previous chapter. Finally, the chief cupbearer remembers Joseph. And how surprising and sudden all of this would have been to Joseph. You know, one, one moment going about his regular daily duties in the prison, and then within a short span of time standing before the greatest king in the known world. Even as Solomon describes in Proverbs 22. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And what is pictured in verse 14? Joseph's resurrection. He's brought out of the pit. It's the same word that Joseph uses in regards to his circumstances in chapter 40 and verse 15. It's the same term used back in chapter 37 to describe the pit, the cistern in which Joseph was put by his brothers before being sold to the Ishmaelites. Going down into a pit, into a prison, is symbolic of death. Joseph has suffered a number of deaths, but now he's being raised up. He's being given a new life. Before he could appear to Pharaoh, uh, before Pharaoh, Joseph had to shave. The Egyptians were known as uh, clean-shaven people. Apparently, uh, a unique custom in the ancient world. The men even shaved the hair on their heads. Also, Joseph receives a change of clothes. He doesn't appear before the king of Egypt in his servants' rags, but is given new garments. Certainly, with all the emphasis upon Joseph's clothing and the association between garments and office, we we can begin to see Joseph's position, his status, changing. So Joseph is presented before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him what he's heard regarding his ability to interpret dreams. And Joseph is quick to reply in verse 16 that there's nothing in and of himself that gives him this ability, but that God will give Pharaoh an answer to peace, an answer to shalom. The name God is used some eight times in this chapter. What's Joseph doing here? He's evangelizing. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's testifying as to who is the true interpreter of dreams, the true source of dreams, the true God. We do well to understand that there's a real sense in which a a religious confrontation is taking place here. The Nile, cows, the Sun, all had correspondence in the Egyptian pantheon of gods. And the magicians, the priests of these gods, had failed to interpret the dream, which is basically a failure of these gods. Pharaoh himself was viewed as a god Joseph testifies to the true and supreme God. Well, in verses 17 to 24, Pharaoh recounts his dream to Joseph. And we're given the details of the dream for a second time. But notice a, a couple of key differences here. We're given a few more details in Pharaoh's commentary of the dream. In verse 19, Pharaoh refers to the evil thin cows as such as he'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And after they'd eaten the fat cows, you'd never known it because they looked as thin as before. That's new information to the listener or reader of the story. Pharaoh mentions his waking up, and then the second part of his dream about the blighted ears of grain swallowing up the good ears. Then notice the last part of verse 24. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could reveal it to me. Then Joseph's response in verse 25. The dreams of Pharaoh are one, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The same word is used in those corresponding verses. And don't miss the contrast. None of the priests of the Egyptian gods could reveal the dream, which means none of the Egyptian gods themselves revealed the dream. Instead, God is the one revealing things to Pharaoh. Again, be sure to note what Joseph is saying about the Egyptian gods. The Nile River is not in control. The sun is not in control. Pharaoh himself is not in control. No, God is clearly in control. He's operating things. He's the one who will cause the regular order of the Egyptian agricultural system to be disrupted in seven years. The king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world at that time, has to submit himself to what God's going to do. He might be the king, but he can't control what's going to take place. And also notice that God is a God of revelation, a God who speaks. And he's revealing himself to Pharaoh through the dream and also through Joseph, his servant, his priest. Well, in verses 25 to 32, Joseph serves and fulfills the role of a priest, a magician, giving the interpretation to Pharaoh's dream. The word seven is used ten times in these verses. And Joseph states that the two dreams are really one. They're they're two dreams dealing with the same event. And Joseph states this twice. So how does Joseph interpret the dream? The seven good cows and good ears are seven years. And the seven evil cows and seven empty ears are seven years of famine. And perhaps you already picked up on it, but I want you to hear And see the subtle mention of good and evil in Joseph's interpretation. Discerning good and evil has to do with kings and wisdom. And Joseph is being portrayed as the one who is capable of doing that. Then note Joseph's statement in verse 28, which more literally reads, It is the word which I spoke to Pharaoh, what God is doing he has caused Pharaoh to see. God is speaking to Pharaoh through Joseph. He's causing him to see, enabling him to make judgments about what he's doing in the world. This is a big deal. Verses 29 to 31, Joseph gives the details of the interpretation of the dream. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. But the famine will be so severe that the seven years of plenty will be completely forgotten. And if you look closely, the dream itself contains the advice the counsel of Pharaoh needs How do the seven thin cows survive? Only by swallowing the fat cows. Also notice the repetition of land that emerges here and throughout really the rest of the chapter. It appears more than 20 times. And in verse 32, Joseph declares that the doubling means that it's a thing fixed by God. And that God will shortly bring it about. So Joseph has fulfilled the office of priest. He's interpreted the dream. He's made clear God's revelation to Pharaoh, explaining it to him. And then in verses 33 to 36, we see Joseph fulfill the role of a wise man, of a royal advisor, setting forth a plan in light of the interpretation given to him. And notice that God's revelation proved to be a call to action, that Joseph is moved to action, not passivity or resignation. Joseph acts as a wise man and suggests a wise man be found to implement the plan he's going to propose. Now, perhaps Joseph had himself in mind when he laid out this plan. Could be. He's certainly the most qualified, particularly because of his calling among God's people and also based on his experience in service to his father. Pharaoh needs better priests and wise men, and Joseph fits the bill in both cases. Pharaoh also needs better gods, and we'll see how that plays out momentarily. So Joseph lays out a plan, and what's being conveyed uh, in verse 34 is somewhat debated. There are two basic options, either a fifth, 20%, of uh, the produce is gathered during the seven plentiful years, or the land is divided into five regions and placed under martial law, organized in military fashion, so to speak. I'm inclined to think that the second option is more likely... Because of what is then said in verse 35 about gathering all the food of the good years and storing up the grain under the hand of Pharaoh for food in the cities. In other words, free trade will cease or at least be subordinate to the state of emergency declared for the sake of the entire nation. An unpopular decision among the libertarian and republican Egyptians of that day, but necessary nonetheless. The gathering and reserving of the food may also indicate that international trade ceased for these seven years and all of this so that the land might not perish during the famine. So how does Pharaoh respond to God's word to him through Joseph? Does he have a hard heart? No, he doesn't. Pharaoh has a soft heart, a heart that readily receives the word that has come to him. In fact, I would contend that what is set before us in verses 37 to 40 is the conversion of Pharaoh and really the nation of Egypt along with him. What's the evidence? Well, first, the word that comes to him is good. He's open to God's word. He doesn't reject it. Second, Pharaoh recognizes that it was God who was speaking to him through Joseph and that he, Joseph, has the spirit of God. Third, he confesses that God has shown Joseph these things. He recognizes God as the source for Joseph's ability to interpret the dreams, which parallels Joseph's own confession back in verse 16. Fourth, Pharaoh exalts Joseph precisely because of his faith and puts him in a position of authority over his house and all his people. And surely you recognize how this echoes Joseph's experience in Potiphar's house and then the prison house. And there are probably more reasons we can cite in support of the point, but allow these to suffice for the time being. Also, remember the Canaanites descended from Egypt, so the Egyptians are Canaanites after a fashion. And what's God's way of dealing with Canaanites? We well, either destroys them or confronts and converts them. Here, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, are converted. Not so unlike Abimelech the Philistine in Genesis 26. Later things will be different. But here we see all of the nations of the earth being blessed in the seed of Abraham. Well, in verses 39 to 46, we behold the ascension of Joseph. Joseph's kingly wisdom is confessed. He's placed in position of rule and command over Pharaoh's house and all the people. Second only to Pharaoh himself and is set over all the land of Egypt. What also marks out Joseph's ascension? Pharaoh gives him his signet ring from his hand and places it on Joseph's hand, a symbolic transfer of authority, and that whatever Joseph decrees will be as if Pharaoh decreed it. Joseph receives new garments befitting his office, the fine linen, perhaps priestly in symbolism, and the gold chain, perhaps being kingly. He even received Pharaoh's chariots. What's a chariot? It's a throne on wheels perhaps further indicative of his ascended position in the kingdom. The chariot that appears in Canto 29 of Dante's Purgatory is rendered as a triumph car. See, The people were to bow the knee when Joseph rode by. And again, Pharaoh declares Joseph's total rule in the land. And in verse 44, his control was so absolute that no one was to lift hand or foot without Joseph's consent. Not literally, of course. But you just get this overwhelming impression by the author that Joseph is in total control. In verse forty-five, Joseph is given a new name, an Egyptian name, the translation of which isn't certain, but could mean "God speaks," "He lives," which, if accurate, is quite fitting. And then notice that Joseph is given in marriage as the daughter Potipharah, priest of On. Now, what's the significance of this? Does it mean that Joseph has compromised his faith and married a pagan? The name Asenath means belonging to the goddess Neth. Potiphera means given by Ra or Re. Re was the sun god of Egypt. The city of An was later called Heliopolis by the Greeks, the city of the sun. Potiphera was a priest, a religious leader. Jesus, Joseph has shown himself to be a true priest. Pharaoh giving him Asenath implies that Joseph is also in charge of Egypt's religion. And what is that? The worship of God, Elohim. See, I think we're to conclude that Potiphar and Asanath were god fears that they were Christians, and so Joseph is not being unequally yoked with a Canaanite. He knows how vexing Esau's Canaanite marriages were. He also knows the sin and fall of the Sethites in Genesis 6. Righteous Joseph isn't going to make that mistake. And so he marries this daughter that's been converted. And we observe further proof of Pharaoh's conversion in his treatment of Joseph's family when they come from Canaan, but also in the fact that Jacob blesses Pharaoh in chapter 47. It's mentioned, it's mentioned two times. Jacob wouldn't bless a pagan king in an empty way. He's not wasting his words. Jacob's theology is too solid for that. Also in chapter 45, and verse 8, Joseph states that God made him a father to Pharaoh. How so? What's that mean? Well, Joseph is a father in the faith to the Egyptian king. And who is Joseph's father in the faith? Well, of course, Jacob, but then also big daddy Abraham. Abraham is a father of many nations, including Egypt converted under the preaching of Joseph. So Joseph hasn't compromised his faith in marrying Asenath, not at all. Rather, it further solidifies his position as the priest king over the entire land of Egypt. Joseph is the source of bread and wine. Joseph is being portrayed as another Melchizedek. The text explicitly tells us that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The age of 30 in Scripture is the age of moving into authority in one's calling. It was the age for the priesthood in Israel. It was the age when Jesus was baptized, anointed for his ministry as priest, king, and prophet. And having been brought to Egypt in captivity and against his will, Joseph now rides throughout the land freely and of his own accord. Well, verses 47 to 49 recount the years of superabundance. was so much grain coming in after time that they quit measuring it. And note how the abundance is described like the sand of the sea. This is the same language used in relation to the promises made to Abraham in chapter 22 and verse 17 and to Jacob in chapter 32 and verse 12 about their seed, their offspring. And this proves to be an interesting segue into the comments regarding Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Their birth is introduced with, before the year of famine came. That may indicate that they're twins. But the Lord is prospering Joseph before the famine strikes. As indicated in the text, the name Manasseh is related to forgetting all the trouble Joseph endured in all his father's house. It's a name about forgetting the past. And even as Joseph might be forgetting his father's house, his experience of affliction is very much like his father, Jacob, who declared to Laban, God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. God's chosen servants suffer affliction. Ephraim has to do with fruitfulness in the land of his affliction. Joseph is enjoying the present and looking to the future. And it does seem that he's temporarily forgotten his dreams from the years before, that he would one day rule over his brothers and father some 13 years before. Also, we should note that Joseph bears two sons in faithfulness, which contrasts with the two sons that Tamar bore to Judah due to his unfaithfulness, as recorded in Genesis 38. Well, finally, in verses 53 to 57, the years of plenty come to an end and the famine arrives at last. And although the word all and land have been frequently used already, in this last section, they're each used eight times in these verses. In verse 57, the word translated earth in the ESV is really land, but is clearly referring to land outside of Egypt. And what's the final impression that you're given here? Again, that Joseph is in charge that he has dominion over all the earth, that he's the source for bread, that he has the bread of life for all the nations. And I trust the connections to to Jesus are fairly obvious, even as he declares himself to be the bread of life in John chapter 6. And surely we see in Joseph's resurrection and ascension, Jesus' own resurrection And And Paul's words about Jesus in Philippians 2 are that much more vividly evident. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This exaltation, the name, the bowing down, that's all reflected in what we've just read about Joseph. The exaltation of Joseph foreshadows the exaltation of Christ. But not only should we think of Philippians 2 when reading this text in Genesis, but also an account of, that we find in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. At the beginning of that text we read, And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What did Pharaoh declare of Joseph in our text today? Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Who are the poor, captive, and oppressed that Jesus is referring to? Well, originally the Jews, according to the text from Isaiah 61, that he read from. But could there also be an application to Gentiles who are poor in comparison to the Jews who are given advantages, even as Paul refers to in Romans 2 and 3? Then what do we read in, what do we read next in Luke 4? And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now, the most natural reading of that last question about Joseph's son is that it's a reference about Joseph the carpenter, Mary's husband. And that's certainly one meaning of the text. But could there be an intentional double entendre being employed so that you should think about Joseph? The Joseph of the book of Genesis instead. See, what is Jesus going to talk about in Luke 4? The ministry of Elijah to the widow at Zarephath. And the ministry of Elisha to Naaman the Syrian. Jesus tells about ministry to the Gentiles. What's the point? Joseph took the gospel to the Gentiles. Could Jesus, the son of Joseph, do any less? And Jesus' words make the Jews in the synagogue so angry that they try to kill him. Not so unlike Joseph's brothers, are they? His own brothers tried to kill him. But Joseph was accepted in the court of Pharaoh, the Gentile king. And not surprisingly, these allusions to Joseph in Egypt are found in Luke's gospel, the gospel to the Gentiles. And once again, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we get a glimpse of what will ultimately be of the trajectory of the world, the baptizing and discipling of the nations. Joseph became the new chief baker, the new secretary of agriculture. And for all intents and purposes, he became the new cupbearer as well, the chief advisor to the king. In other words, Joseph brought new bread and new wine to Egypt. As one theologian states, In Joseph's service to the world, we see a picture of the ministry of the church. It is the divine calling of the church to speak the word of God to men and offer them better bread and wine. The church does not exist for her own sake, but for the sake of the world. God wants a Christian world. And we have his promises that one day, someday, he will bring it to pass. He continues. While he languished in prison, Joseph had no idea what was going on in Pharaoh's heart. He did not realize that God the Holy Spirit was at work making Pharaoh dissatisfied. He did not know that one night God would bring his word to Pharaoh and Pharaoh would need someone to interpret it. He did not know that one day his suffering would be rewarded and that he would stand before the king of the earth. This should encourage us. We pray for our rulers and those in authority over us, but we don't see them change. We have no way of knowing, however, what God may be doing. Our God is still the God of nightmares. In our secular humanist society, Christians are often in prison in various ways. Yet God's word is faithful, and the time will come when secular society will turn to God's people for help. May we be ready for the day we stand before kings. I trust that's encouraging and hopefully it gives us some further perspective on how we can faithfully view the current landscape in which we find ourselves. The need for biblical wisdom is all the more paramount and we need to be ready to speak into people's lives with the truth of the gospel, with God's word, which is his way for life to be lived in this world that he's made. We've been given so much. We have the blessings of the covenant of being God's people of having been given His Word and the means of grace, and He readily supplies us for this calling, and His resources are never flagging. And we're renewed to this calling week after week. But through Joseph's example, notice the way we primarily go about this, being ready for such moments, by being faithful in what's right in front of us, in the calling of daily life as a spouse, parent, child, student, employee, employer, etc., and most fundamentally, as they're calling us Christians and in obedience to God's word. See, if we aren't applying to our own hearts and lives and putting into practice the very principles that our collapsing society needs, then we, we're neither ready, we're neither ready nor do we have anything to say. Joseph's life has, a bit, has evidenced obedience, faithfulness, integrity, humility, and a ready confession of who God is. And what he's done and what he's able to do. That sounds like a pretty good paradigm for our own lives. For our faith to be lived out among one another and before a watching world. And we don't go grasping for authority before the proper time. We don't seek to seize things prematurely. But wait upon the Lord by giving ourselves to the daily faithfulness of life. To which each and every one of us is called in our respective callings and spheres. Pursuing skill in our work. Remember, Joseph ended up having to wait two years before the cupbearer remembered him. Was that hard? Certainly. Was it disappointing? Likely. But there's no indication that Joseph faltered in faithfully giving himself to what was right in front of him in the prison house. He likely had his bad days, as we all do. But through the resolve of faith, he continued on. And we're called the same in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, in testimony to the God who is ours and whom we serve. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word that has come to us this day. We thank you for the beautiful way in which the scriptures are written. And we do ask once again that you would be pleased to impress your word further upon our hearts and lives that we might bear fruit to your glory and for the building up of your church and kingdom in this world. Indeed, Father, may your spirit help us to these ends. May you continue to grow and mature our faith and grow and mature us in the lives we are called to live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.